You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Studies into near-death experiences used to be the collecting of stories and anecdotes from people many dismissed as attention seekers or cranks. But now some scientists and medical practitioners are suggesting that something quite astonishing might lie behind these claims of passing into a different world. Here's Basil Engels. Hey everyone, welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name's Basil. And my name is Gons. Welcome to episode number 71. 71. And we are going to discuss near-death experiences today. Yes. Very, very interesting topic. You know, there's been near-death experiences reported for, I don't even know, centuries. Yeah. Really long time. Right. Well, we're going to try something a little different today. Instead of just talking about it, which uh, there's a lot of shows and stuff that do that. You know, they talk about the experience and whatnot. We're going to tell a couple different stories uh, which is a little different for Canary Cry Radio. Yes. <laughs> yes, but I think you'll enjoy it. I sure did. And, um, you know, I think a near-death experience is something that really warrants hearing it from the person who had the experience. Right. You know, it wouldn't do it justice if uh, Gons and I did a whole expose on near-death experiences because that's exactly what it is. It's, it's an experience. And... and a big part of the experience is telling it in your own words. Right. And before we do, though, we're going to just go through a few points of facts and just details concerning near-death experiences so that you guys have a little bit of background. And I'm sure most people are pretty familiar with, you know, what, what it basically is. But in short, an NDE, near-death experience, is a profound psychological event that may occur to a person close to or if not near death in a situation of physical or emotional crisis but you know there's there's two elements to the near-death experience Um, there's the transcendental element of it which is sort of mystical and kind of mysterious and and a little bit more hard to nail down as far as if it was real quote unquote or not and then there's the other side of it, which is the veridical side, which, you know, it, it's stories of people hearing conversations in other rooms when their body was laying in one room and stuff like that. Right. And we're actually not going to focus too much on that stuff, even though that's the more, I guess, compelling evidence if you're a scientist, because it grounds, you know, there's, there's verifiable evidence, so to speak, with these experiences, you know, so... But uh, I don't know. Have you ever had a near-death experience, Basil? I have been near death, but I have <laughs> not had what we like to call a near-death experience. I don't know if that's a blessing or not, but uh, you know, I'm open to it. Yeah, and we should note that you know nobody should really base their theology based on a near-death experience necessarily. I think you can take what's good, take out what may not align biblically and stuff like that. Uh, But it seems like people who have a near-death experience, you know, it's sort of shaped by 
what their belief systems were in real life. Right. So yeah, it is interesting because um, you know, as Christians, we hear a lot of act- of Christian based or influenced near death experiences where people see Jesus or angels or experience hell or heaven. But there are stories out there of, of Buddhists having near death experiences and. Uh, what, do they see Buddha or something? Yeah, I think I heard the story of this Buddhist guy who died and then had a near-death experience where he was like in a boat, like in a rowboat in a lake, like fishing with Buddha or something. You know, don't quote me on that, but I, I do remember hearing something about that. So by all means, these are experiences that people have had, but there's still some value to glean from hearing about them. Sure. Uh, so we'll give you some facts here about the near-death experience, just so you guys can have a little bit of head knowledge before we completely go off the rails here with the stories. And uh, a lot of this information we got from IANDS.org, which is the International Association for Near-Death Studies. It's a real thing. It's, you know, it is looked at seriously by scientific-minded people. And, uh, you know, they come up with a bunch of uh, common characteristics of the near-death experience. And, you know, we won't go through all of them, but keep some of these in the back of your mind as you listen to the story, because the stories do report some of these things. But a couple of them are a sense of being outside of one's physical body, a sense of movement through darkness or tunnel, intense emotions, heightened perception, uh, perceiving a spiritual realm, which may include vividly memorable landscapes and encounters with deceased loved ones, spiritual beings, and or religious figures. So, there you go. Um, yeah. And then, you know, there's knowledge of nature or of the universe sort of inherent in these things. You know, the, commonly a life review or a sense of oneness and interconnectedness or a border of no return that exists somewhere. Um, a sense of having knowledge of the future or the past or or even sometimes receiving messages regarding a life's purpose. Right. And most of the experiences report a feeling of peace and joy and love and some of them are not so peace, love and joy which we'll <laughs> we'll, you know, exemplify in one of our right. stories. But the thing that's really interesting is that almost everybody that has a near death experience comes back and claims that they are changed. Right. Well, the earliest known near-death experience was recounted by Plato in his writings, The Myth of Ur, found at the end of Book 10 of The Republic, written in 420 BC. And the accounts can be found in folklore and writings of the Europeans or Middle Eastern or Africans or Indian, really all over the place. Yeah, it's all over the world. It's not just uh, an American phenomenon seeing Jesus. <laughs> so, right. Uh, but, you know, a survey that was done of how many people have had NDEs, the survey was between the US, Australia, and Germany. They suggested that somewhere between 4 and 15% of the population have had NDEs. That's a lot. That is a lot. Hmm. And as you stated before, there's two different categories of near-death experiences. There's the veridical that can be verified, and there's many case studies that go along with this. And we'll actually put a link, I think, to one of them. 
and then transcendental, which uh, they're experiences that can't necessarily be verified, usually really mystical or intense, but, you know, still experiences. And there are critics of near-death experiences. You know, there's always very logical scientific types who just say, you know, NDEs are hallucinations. But the response to those people is, you know, hallucinations are usually and medically illogical, fleeting, bizarre, distorted, just very weird. Whereas the vast majority of NDEs are very logical, orderly, clear, and comprehensible, and people really remember them and and they really really affect their lives whereas with hallucinations caused by you know any sort of dementia or mental illness usually are very fleeting and really cause more confusion than right. anything else or drugs right right drugs yeah well ketamine and psilocybin are two drugs that have reportedly triggered sort of the same kind of mystical experiences mushrooms yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right sorry um, go ahead yeah a man named carl jensen has written more than anyone else about nde like ketamine experiences like drug induced sort of experiences right um says and I quote, after 12 years of studying ketamine, I now believe that there most definitely is a soul that is independent of experience. It exists when we begin and may persist when we end. Ketamine is a door to a place we cannot normally get to. It is definitely not evidence that such a place does not exist. So even after studying the effects of drugs on consciousness, Carl Jansen says himself that, you know, there's definitely more to the experience than drugs. Right. And for those of you who don't know what ketamine is, uh, it is a it's drug. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Highly recommended by Basil, apparently. Sound, sounds awesome. I, uh, I, guess. I think, I, mean, I think, um, I'm not sure exactly where it comes from, but I know that ketamine can be attained through the use of getting horse tranquilizer. Don't so, ask me how I know that. Yeah, I was going to say, so you know where to get ketamine. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should make our own little case study. Maybe we take a trip south. Just kidding, everybody. Yeah, we're, we're just joking around here. We're, and I know this is a serious matter, but, you know, quill, we got to... Quill, Yeah, uh, I, can, okay. I can see it now. Basil and Gons <laughs> are on ketamine and mushrooms. I mean, there's already all sorts of stuff about us out there, I'm I sure. Know. The birds of Babylon. We won't get into that anyway. The birds of Babylon. <laughs> um, one of the biggest common denominators of an NDE, which we mentioned earlier, it actually comes from Raymond Moody, who was actually the person who coined the phrase, the near-death experience, based on a book that he wrote called Life After Life back in 1975. Here's what he had to say. Quote, There is one common element in all near-death experiences— they transform the people who have them. In my 20 years of intense exposure to NDEs, I have yet to find, or NDEers, I have yet to find one who hasn't had a deep and positive transformation as a result of his experience. So that's a medical doctor who studied people who have this experience for 20 years, saying that he's never had one person come back and say, eh. <laughs> well, this weird thing happened. That was weird. Business as usual. Yeah. Back to normal life. Mm -hmm. So, but you know, um, 
<laughs> it was funny. You know the creator of South Park? I do. What was his name? I can't remember. Cartman. Eric no. Cartman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Seth something. No, that you're thinking of Seth MacFarlane? Yeah. No, that's not. He's not the South Park guy. Or not South Park. I'm that's, sorry. That's family, family guy. guy. Family guy. Yeah, there yes, you go. There you go. Sorry. So Seth, Seth MacFarlane, you know, they talked about, there was a, a report that said, oh, Seth MacFarlane had a near-death experience. And really, he didn't. He he just missed. He was supposed to be on the flight that hit the Twin Towers uh, back in 2001. Oh, he nearly died. He nearly experience. died. Experience. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that didn't change him profoundly. But right. it's because he didn't see the other side. But anyway. Uh, uh, so there's been a lot of books written on the near-death experience, or actually just people's experience of the NDE. Right. And, uh, I mean, it's a whole market, you know? I mean, yeah. <laughs> we can... Uh, I'm, I'm actually thinking about, you know, having a little self-induced NDE so we can we can start making some cash, Basil. Um, okay. <laughs> I, that sounds like a cockamimi scheme I can jump on board with. <laughs> Anyway, no, um, but there's a ton. I mean, you go to Amazon, you just type in near-death experience, and you're going to get tons of stuff. Some of the yeah. more popular ones. A lot of very recent ones, too. Yeah, it's a, it's a recent phenomenon. I, I don't know why people are more interested in it recently, the, but... Right, the books, writing the books. Is writing the, the books, phenomenon. yeah, the writing yeah. the books. Uh, Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife by Eben Alexander. This one's pretty popular. Uh, near-death experiences, real suicide survivor stories. Uh, you got Heaven is Real, Heaven Exists, Proof of Life After Death, Real Stories of Near-Death Experiences, Book One. Um, <laughs> to Heaven and Back, a doctor's extraordinary account of her death, Heaven, Angels, and Life Again, a that's true a, story. That's a doozy. <laughs> uh, these titles have like three subtitles on each one. To Heaven and Back kind of reminds me of uh, the book Bilbo Baggins was writing. <laughs> there and back again. By Bilbo Baggins. Dying to be me. I don't know if I'm dying to be Anita Morjani, who's the author. My journey from cancer to near death to true healing. Mm. And then there's uh, my journey to heaven. What I saw and how it changed my life. Marvin J. Bestman. Beastman. Beastman. Beastman? A boastman. Bestman. Best man. Bestie man. Best, bestie man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and wasn't there a movie recently about um, a yeah, boy heaven, who... Yeah, Heaven is for Real. Yeah. That's the most, uh, I think, the most popular one right now. Yeah, it was a big Hollywood movie. Right. Yeah, and, and never saw it. I heard it was good. I never saw it either, but I know that Christians were going cuckoo with, uh, oh, they're doing Christian, because it came out right around the same time as Yeah, there's, there's a lot of Christian movies coming out lately, yeah. but that's for another podcast. Yeah. Um, but, you know, not just the stories that were relayed, there's been a lot of books written by, you know, doctors and PhDs and stuff. Um, just to name a couple, you have Consciousness Beyond Life, The Science of the Near-Death Experience by Pim Van Lommel. Near-Death Experience as Evidence for the Existence of God in Heaven, A Brief Introduction in Plain Language, by wow. J. Steve Miller and Jeffrey Long, M.D. So again, I hope y'all are taking doctor. notes so you can look these up. Yeah, or you can just go to Amazon. 
for that. Because that's what you did, that's didn't you? That's what I did. <laughs> Hardcore research. <laughs> Science and the Near-Death Experience, How Consciousness Survives Death by Chris Carter. So, you know, there's a lot of this stuff going on with people discussing the science behind it you know what it means a lot of new agers have picked up on some of this stuff of oh you know this is consciousness beyond our life and things right. like that so yeah there's a lot of stuff out there yes. um but also the internet exists now and with youtube Many, many more people have been able to actually record their story and put it on YouTube for everybody to hear. And it's actually, I think, might be the best thing that's ever happened to the NDE community because you can just watch hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of people telling their near-death experience story. Right. And, uh, you know, I say this because you and I have watched hours and hours and hours and hours of NDE stories on YouTube. And there are a lot of good ones. There yeah. are a lot of weird ones, but there are also a lot of good ones. And um, one of them is a story told by a Mr. Sean Weed. Yeah, and, and, and before, we, before we dive into that, most of the accounts that you hear about NDEs are really positive. Mm-hmm. But there are some negative ones, and I just want to note a couple of them, because if we don't at least mention them, we're going to get the... Why didn't you mention this one? Uh, And we'll still probably get that. But there was a book called A Near-Death Experience, I Died and Came Back from Hell by Grady Mosby. And then there was the famous uh, Howard Storm is another famous guy who talked about a a horrific experience when he uh, had a near-death experience and uh, saw hell and demons and all kinds of stuff. Uh, And Bill Weiss is another gentleman who has, uh, I think his book is called 23 Minutes in Hell, where he uh, allegedly descended down to hell and and whatnot. And um, interestingly enough, I actually spoke to someone, uh, this is a few years ago, but I was, you know, doing my thing, teching at at a church event. And this guy that just happened to be there uh, in the room with me started telling me about his experience of going to hell. And he was telling me how it's real and it's scary and, and yeah. all this stuff. So, so there's that, that other side. Yes, it exists. And actually, now that you mention it, this story that Sean Weed tells us is similar. He tells a story about dying and going to hell and being sent back. His video has almost 39,000 views on YouTube. And I think it's an interesting one. Sean Weed. I, uh, I was born in, and well, not born, but raised in uh, Bernice, Louisiana, small town, population 2,500. Um, technically, right outside of it, in a small uh, community uh, by the name of Pisgah. Sean Weed was in the military. He was a military man for a long time. When I was uh, 19 years old, I joined the Marine Corps. And one day he was able to take leave. I had, uh, I was at that time, uh, not, not a, uh, a, what I would consider a Christian. Um, I'd grown up in a Baptist church. I knew about heaven and hell and um, well, as much as anyone can know. At that time, I was pretty much doing my own thing, living my own life, my own way. 
he was broke, same with some of his friends, and he decided to stay on base instead of go out. So he was hanging out with his buddies one night in their bunk. In 110 degree sweltering weather because it was just really uh, nothing else to do at camp. And he tells a little story about how in their bunk there's a noose hanging from the A-frame of the building. Now it wasn't a noose like somebody was trying to hang themselves. He explains that as soldiers, they get really bored. And when somebody finds some rope, soldiers find all sorts of ways to entertain themselves. This particular noose was no danger to anybody. Nobody was planning on killing themselves. In fact, the noose hung from the ceiling all the way down to about a foot off the ground. I was worried about hanging themselves. You'd have to lay down on the ground to hang yourself with this thing, literally. And of course, it was made of hay ropes. So he goes into detail about how there's no way anybody could actually kill themselves. One of Sean's buddies in his bunk was a great photographer. He had taken pictures of the impact zones, and Sean spoke very highly of his work. Uh, he drove right into it and got right up on the edge of the impact area and took some amazing photos. Um, he was one of those guys that was intelligent, but at the same time was always willing to push the barriers of stupidity, uh, which he did. But needless to say, uh, the photos that he took were uh, absolutely stunning. Well, it was the same buddy who thought he had a great idea for the last picture in his role of film. He asked Sean to go over to the noose, lie down, slip into it for a picture. I got an idea. Um, he said, hey, Reed, why don't you uh, go over there and stick your head inside that noose and act like you're dead and I'll take the last picture. I'm like, okay. His photographer buddy was giving him some advice on how best to look dead. He's like, all right, now let your arms dangle loose. Now close your eyes, you know, relax them. Don't, don't make any wrinkles. You know, stick your tongue out a little, you know. Um, cock your head to the side a little bit, you know. And he's giving me all these instructions so to make a, 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 a real-looking photo. But his camera ran out of batteries, so he went to go put in a new one. At this time, Sean's other friend snuck up behind him and jokingly tightened the noose around his neck. Slammed it down around my throat, uh, just as I, uh, just as I uh, had exhaled. Sean's buddies noticed this and thought it was all a big joke. Uh, immediately, I stood up, stunned, you know, because I didn't know. Number one, I didn't know that he was sneaking up behind me. Number two. I just got this rope slammed down around my neck, and number three, I couldn't breathe. And uh, I knew I had just seconds left, maybe six to eight seconds, because I had just exhaled and I couldn't breathe back in. He frantically began to try to loosen the noose, but it was no use, <laughs> no use loosening the noose. I said to myself, I have one shot, one chance to get this right, otherwise I'm a dead man. I closed my eyes and I clenched my teeth and I pulled for everything that I was worth. After struggling and struggling, Sean finally got loose of the noose and walked over to sit next to his friends. He talks about watching his friends sitting on the bunk, eating snacks, looking in their bag. Nothing was different. And as he's sitting there with his buddies... He leans over and he looks at me right in the face. He's only four feet away from me. Leans over and he looks me right in the face. He goes, I don't think he's playing. Of course, we're the only three in the room, so I'm just like, what's he talking about? So Jason Laycock and I turn and look back, and sure enough, there's my body hanging from the noose. I 
needless to say, I was completely shocked. So I immediately just shocked. I just stood up, you know, and I turned and faced my body, which was hanging from that noose roughly about 30 feet away. And uh, I walked out and I walked over closer to I was about, you know, maybe 15 feet away so I could get a better look. And sure enough, it, it was definitely me. And I'm standing there and I'm thinking to myself, how can, you know, I, uh, how can I be there and here at the same time? And I look down and I'm sure enough I'm wearing the same green uh, t-shirt, the same brown well belt, uh, the same camouflage pants, the same black boots. I even pulled my dog tags out and I was still wearing them. I looked at my hand and I realized that if I stared at my hand, I could see through my hand and see the, the sand on the ground. And uh, that's when I realized I was dead. And uh, I had been dead and sitting next to my friends for five minutes and then I realized they didn't even know I was there. They couldn't see me. At first, the soldiers didn't realize the seriousness of the situation. He goes, now that's a good picture and snaps the last photo. The, the film began to rewind. Uh, Toby Page walked up and looked beside him and just gave him this stupid look like... And finally told him to stop joking around. His nose is blue, his lips are blue, his, his eyelids are blue. There's drool hanging out of his mouth all the way down to the ground. Are you a bleeping retard, you know? Well, Jason like stood up, took a couple steps forward, and then realized that what he was saying was true. He saw that my extremities on my face were blue, so he tossed his camera off the, over towards his rack, not really caring for its care at all where it landed. He just tossed it, and he ran forward. He grabbed my body around the waist and picked up. When he did this, he screamed for uh, Corporal Page to come over there and... Uh, get the uh, noose off my neck. Now at this point, Sean takes some action. And I think this might be a useful thing to remember if anybody listening finds himself in a similar situation. He tries to step back into his body. And uh, bad idea when I tried that, when I stepped forward into my, trying to step forward into my body, It was just like somebody slugged me. I mean, just as hard as I could possibly be hit. And uh, the sense of vertigo came over, you know, it overtook me and just weakened me. So I actually stumbled backwards, like dizzy. Despite this, he tries it again. I thought, okay, well, this is my opportunity. My body's not moving around anymore. It's laying down, it's, you know, in a stable position. I'll just lay back down into my body. And so that's pretty much what I did. I placed my foot inside of my foot, and my other foot inside my foot, and I sat down just like I'm sitting now. I looked back and saw how my body was laying and how my head was positioned, so I just leaned back into my body. And as soon as my head falls inside my head, I'm instantaneously standing up, and I'm in complete darkness. I mean, it's, um, it's a darkness that you could almost feel. I know it sounds weird, it doesn't make any sense, but uh, that's the only way that I can put it. I mean, because 
this darkness had like a texture to it. Um, and it was complete darkness. It was just solid black. And I know the first thing I thought to myself is, well, where am I, you know? And I had no clue where I was. I was still wearing everything that I had been wearing before, only I was just in this place that I didn't recognize at all. And uh, the first thing I noticed is that there is nothing. And when I say nothing, I mean absolutely nothing. So he finds himself in complete blackness, a total void with no floor, no sky, nothing around him, just a tangible darkness. I thought to myself, well, if I was in a completely dark room, I wouldn't be able to see my hand in front of my face. How is it that I'm able to see what there's light coming from somewhere? And so I looked up, because that's where pretty much all sources of light are, whether you're inside or outside, they're above you. So I looked up and I see nothing. And uh, that's when I realized that I was the one that was emanating the light that I was able to see with. I was glowing like a, like a chem light. And in this darkness, he's not alone. From that point, I became very scared. Before he knows it, there's a being who wraps his hand around his shoulder and neck. He describes it as a demon. Of course, for me, I didn't know what had happened. It was like getting hit by a truck and having no clue that it was ever coming. This thing had come up on, come up behind me so fast and it caught me by complete surprise and it was so big. I can't possibly begin to describe what it's like being in the grips of something that big. And I had this pain just shooting from my head to my feet like a bolt of electricity but it's not stopping it's like being constantly shocked or electrocuted and i had this pounding sensation just hurt hurting pounding sensation coming from my left shoulder that hurts even worse than the, this electricity that's running to my body and i look to my left and i see these fingers which come down to roughly the bottom of my chest I mean, it literally went from the side of my neck out to maybe past the end of my shoulder, the width of its hand. He describes the demon in detail. Uh, the color of its skin was black and oily and red. I'm watching these giant red fingers with blackness moving through it. Now, like I said, I don't know if it was shadows or if it was a substance beneath the skin. He talks about how in this place, anything you want to know, you know. You ask a question and it's answered for you. This thing had a hold of me and I'm looking down at these fingers and I'm just thinking to myself, what is this that has a hold of me? And as I'm thinking this, I understand now that anything that you think in this place can be heard as if you had spoken it out loud. And this thing had me like this and was just smiling at me. It looked back and it was smiling at me, waiting for me to look at it. And uh, when I looked over my shoulder and up at it, it was already staring at me. And I understand now that it had heard what I was thinking and just wanted to give me a nice little shock, you know, on top of the pain that I was already experiencing. Overall, the thing, I know this sounds already more crazy than everything that I've already said, but this thing is 13 feet tall. And it's not like I sat there and said, okay, uh, stand still, let me grab a, a step ladder and measure you. Uh, where's my tape measure? You don't know. Anything that you want to know in this place, all you have to do is ask it. Ask it in your mind or ask it out loud and the answer will be given to you. It doesn't matter. And I 
thought to myself, how big is this thing? And it, the answer immediately came to me, 13 feet. It was exactly, exactly 13 feet tall. And as it traveled, it was moving incredibly fast. If I would guess, I would say probably at over 80 to 100 miles an hour. It may have been faster than that, I don't know. But all I know is the thing was moving very, very fast. There was nothing, nothing at all I could do to get away or anything like that. And uh, I looked at its face for only a second and it was enough to scare me. And uh, it, it would be enough to scare anybody, I'm pretty sure. And if this experience of being swept up by a demon in a total black void was not enough, Sean describes the emotional effect of his experiences. He talks about how all hope is completely drained from him. How hope at this time seemed like a tangible substance and that it was simply non-existent. Literally felt hope and emotion as if it were a physical substance like water in a cup just being poured out of me. I literally felt hope pour out of me starting from the inside of my head. It just drained out of my body all the way down and right out through my feet. And once hope left me, it was like I became numb. It was just like I was just drained completely of all strength. Any energy that I had was just gone. And in this absence of hope, he begins to realize some very important things. I don't know if this is in the Bible or not, but I think that the strength of hope is in God. You know, and without God, without any hope, you don't really have a reason to live. You don't have a reason to fight. You don't have any strength whatsoever. So without hope, you don't have strength. With this absence of hope, he finally just resigned himself to the demon's will. He had a question though. He thought in his head, where am I being taken? Where am I going? What's gonna happen to me? The answer was, it's taking you to hell. Now, when I grew up in a Baptist church, I was, taught, I was taught hell was fire and brimstone. That's an empty void of an area. But that's also in the Bible, too. We just don't pay much attention. And they shall be cast out into outer darkness, where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The outer darkness that they're speaking of is where I landed. And when I understood that, it, it was mortally appalling. That's the only way I can put it. I mean, I just... It played over and over in my head again. It's taking me to hell, it's taking me to hell. But then Sean had a thought. He thought he wasn't such a bad guy. He didn't deserve to go to hell. This wasn't supposed to be happening. It wasn't like, you know, drugs or, you know, anything like that. I mean, I was just an average guy. Um, I go to church every once in a while, you know? So I didn't really pitch myself as bad. You know, not bad enough to end up in hell, but uh, one thing that I understand now is there's a lot of plenty of good people in hell. A lot of people that used to call themselves Christians are there. And uh, and it's because they didn't really devote their life to God. They lived one foot in and one foot out like I did, you know? And uh, you don't have to be a bad person to go to hell. All you have to do is just be average. And God doesn't call us to be average. He calls us to be holy like He is, you know? And what that really means is, is you got to for lack of better words, you don't have to become a Bible-thumping Christian, but you should devote your life to God for as much as you possibly can. And if that puts me in the 
category of Bible-thumping Christian, then so be it. I'm a Bible-thumping Christian. I would rather be that than in the middle. Because um, I know where in the middle gets you. It gets you in the same place that being fully against him gets you. It's kind of like he said in Revelations 3.20, I wish that you were all the way for me or all the way against me, but because you were in the middle, because you were lukewarm, I spit you out. You know, nah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be that again. I don't want to go back to hell. I know it's there. and I know it. The place is not made for us. It was made for them, and we just unfortunately do not realize the, the, the reality of the place. The reality of the place is far worse than, than you can imagine, and I only experienced a taste of it. I landed on the doorstep of hell. That's the way I like to look at it. Or you can even say I landed in the middle of hell, but it wasn't fire and brimstone, although I know for certain that it does exist because that's where it was taking me. And although I never laid eyes on the flames, I know that they really do exist. And it was then that he saw a pinpoint of light off into the distance. The light moved back and forth, and Sean didn't know if he was changing direction or if that point of light was moving itself and before he could think like a flash of lightning the point of light came rushing towards him and he was soon enveloped in white blinding light it was an angel and the angel reached his hand towards Sean blinding white light and his hand was reaching down to me, and it was an angel. Sorry. And, and, uh, my hand just reached up and grabbed its hand. I was thinking to myself, I'm going to reach up there and grab his hand, and this hand is going to save me, because that's all that I saw, was just a hand. And as soon as I touched its hand, we were all three, we were all motionless and all standing back up on this ground that you can't see. And as the angel, the demon, and Sean were caught motionless in this black void, Sean finally has a chance to take a good look at the angel who is there to rescue him. He describes the angel like this. The angel itself, to describe it for you, was nine feet six inches tall. It had brown wavy hair pushed to the back. It had an olive color skin. Um, it wasn't really white, it wasn't really black. It was somewhere in between, but the light that was emanating from within it was so bright white that it almost practically overshadowed the color of its skin. You couldn't even really, you had to stare to see the color of its, of, of its skin. And I keep saying it because it's an it. It's not really a he or a she. I mean, when you look at this angel, you think to yourself, wow, he is beautiful. And I know that's some odd words to say, but uh, this angel was absolutely beautiful. There's no other words for it. Its eyes were blue. And I mean, when I mean blue, I mean perfect blue. My, like someone took a portion of the sky and put it in its eyes or dipped a cup out of the ocean and poured it into its eye. There was no flaw in it. No flaw. 
he had on a white robe. It was cut down in the V in the front. The sleeves came just below the elbows, and the, it, this robe was a, kind of like a white uh, Roman tunic robe. I guess that would be the way, uh, best way of putting it. And it came just below its knees. I was just so blown away by the beauty of, uh, of it that I didn't even really check to see if it had any shoes on or not. I don't really remember. All I know is uh, it was big. Uh, not as quite as Beast the Demon, but big enough. And uh, I'm looking up at it, and I'm just blown away by its brightness and its beauty. Sean knew that the angel was there to save him, but he also knew that he didn't deserve it. He was in hell for a reason. And he was where he belonged. Once you're there in hell, you, you don't normally get a chance to leave. So... It owned me like a piece of furniture. The demon knew this too, and it didn't know why it was being interfered with. And it wanted to know why it was being stopped, so it turned around and was ready to fight. Make no mistake, uh, this demon was ready to get down in the worst way. As it whipped around, this angel just, its speed was incredible. And it just rushed forward and with an open palm, hit this demon and it had to angle its arm upwards at about the height of its head to hit this demon in the chest and it hit this demon with such power I mean I I can't describe the fierceness of, of the power of this thing but it hit this demon with such force that its hand was literally ripped from my shoulder it it had no clue what had hit it by the time it had even turned its head it was already hit and as the demon was ejected backwards, the angel turned towards Sean and called him by his heavenly name. And um, this angel looked at me and he called me by a long name. And I, un I immediately understood it to be mine. It was a heavenly name. But as soon as it called me this name, it took it from my mind. It called me this name to let me know that I still have a chance to make it into heaven. You know, like, I have a heavenly name, I squandered it, I wasted it. And if this had been my ultimate time, my last breath, for real, uh, that's where I would have stayed. The angel was there not only to rescue Sean from the demon, but to let him know that he was being given a second chance at life. And when Sean heard the angel call him by this name, he says it felt like home. You know, like when your mom calls you uh, for dinner or supper, however you want to say it, you know that it's time to go in and eat and you're all happy, you know, because you just stayed outside playing forever, you know, and you're about to go in and sit with your family. It was like that. You know, it was a feeling of home. It was now that the angel revealed his own name. He looks at me and he says, hello, my name is Michael. <laughs> I didn't do that this was the archangel of the Bible that, that um, spoke of the, arch, the archangel Michael. And uh, I can tell you for certain, I've seen them both. I've seen the archangel and I've seen Jesus and they look nothing alike. And they are not the same being. But the demon wasn't finished. He was coming back for more. 
and it was getting bigger. It was running back after me, and it was getting faster, and it was getting bigger, so it was coming back after me, you know, from this great distance that this angel hit it. And uh, he, so I looked back at him like, whatever you got to say, please just hurry up and say it. And if you're going to get me out of here, please get me out of here. You know, and this is what I was literally thinking, you know, and he just looked at me and he gave me a, saddened look and he looked at me and he just goes your time has not yet come it's time for you to go and he points his finger and when I stepped in that direction it was time for Sean's second chance and in the blink of an eye he was back inside of his body laying on that cot where I knew I should have my eyes opened and it took me a good 20 minutes to uh get to walking again simply because my entire body had fallen asleep. Sean's physical body had been dead for eight minutes. For him to come back to life must have been a huge shock to the soldiers around him. But I think there is a reason that he was given a second chance. Maybe even just to tell his story and have it live on YouTube. Or maybe so we could tell you the story. So Sean's experience is a very intense one. But what do we know about what happens when we die? What does the Bible say? Yeah, the Bible actually has quite a bit to say. First off, I think the the most important thing is that the hope that we have is a physical bodily resurrection. You know, Jesus rose from the dead and he was the first fruits and he rose in a body, you know, it wasn't just a spirit that he rose in, you know, so right. that's number one. So we have to remember that, you know, this idea of an afterlife, it's almost kind of misdirection, you know, because it's not really this, you know, we're not going to just hang out without a body forever. You know, the, the hope is that we will rise again in a physically raised body. So Right. Yeah. I mean, the Hebrew view is that um, the physical body is somehow... Uh, intertwined with the soul, right, and not sort of separate, um, right. The spirit, the spirit and the body creates the soul, and that's right. A, 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 yeah, and the 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 modern you know Christian sort of viewpoint is that there is some sort of separation, and we're not trying to make a case either way. Obviously, the stories of near death experiences do talk about, as Sean had this experience, you know, being separate, being able to look at his body from the outside sort of seeing a ghostly ethereal version of himself right you know having experiences so that we can't speak against people's experiences but again you know with the hebrews as well one of their customs was to preserve the bones because right. you know their their thing was to the body is going to raise again so kind of the question when you look at 1 corinthians 15:42 it says so it is with the resurrection of the dead what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. I kind of like that. It kind of talks about the, the human body, a, a deceased human body as like a, a seed. Right, exactly. And you look at 
the thing, the question that I had was, you know, what happens to the people who were cremated and stuff? You know, what, what about, you know, cause their bones are gone. Are they just going to, you know, what about them? Right. And, uh, I think in the resurrection, God will rebuild a new body for them with new atoms and stuff like that. Well, they could even, I mean, just, uh, again, not the, this is not a dogmatic, the theocratic debate we're having, but even if somebody is cremated, you know, the atoms that compose their body are still the atoms that exist. They're just in a different form, you know, but sure, yeah. atoms just don't disappear. So, you know, just logically and scientifically speaking, if God wanted to raise a cremated person back into a new body, I'm sure he could gather up all those uh, little ashy atoms and rebuild something, you know, if if you wanted to right. just saying so yeah that's a good point and um again you know uh, we're made from the dust of the earth so technically i think whatever constitutes the immortal bodies god will enhance the atoms and the, all the particles that make us physical particles uh so there's a few more verses that talk about you know what happens when you die a lot of um some theologians will suggest that when you die, you're just asleep. Right. The long sleep of the soul. The what? The, lo- the long sleep of long the soul. Sleep. Okay, I thought, yeah. I thought you said something else. Good. Long? Yeah, worse. Um, the long sleep of the soul. Yeah. First Thessalonians 4 talks about that. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And then there's Philippians one twenty one, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So, death is not the end. And uh, that's kind of the whole point here. But, you know, no kidding. I was looking at, are there near-death experiences in the Bible? And I think one of the cases that people often bring up is Acts 7, where Stephen is getting stoned and, and not, not getting high stoned. He's getting killed. And uh, in Acts seven fifty six it says, And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And so he has a clear vision of the heaven, third heavens, and we won't get into that, but... So there you go. That's kind of a near-death experience. And then the most interesting one, I think, is Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 talks about literally an outer body experience. I don't know if it's near death, but it's definitely out of body. 2 Corinthians 12, it says, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And that's interesting when you talk about Sean's experience, right? About hearing his name, but he couldn't really understand it or couldn't relay it into the English language. Right. Yes, very interesting. <laughs> so, you know, just, just a couple more things here before we move on to the next story or the last story. And that is, where are they in these near-death experiences? What, what are they experiencing? What's going on? Because, you know, it, it, there seems to be some kind of physicality going on, right? Sure. 
I mean, in the stories of uh, the, the Sean story, he experienced some form of physicality. It wasn't the same sort of physics right. that we well, experienced. Yeah, he's, he's being interacted with, with different beings. He's physically experiencing a different place. Uh, although, however abnormal that place and abnormal his experiences are, he's definitely having a physical experience of some kind. Right. And the thing is, though, a lot of Christians will talk about, oh, you know, when you die, you're just kind of in this ethereal place. Mm-hmm. You know, you're kind of, you're in the spirit, you know. But if that's the case, then why is there some kind of physicality going on? And so, you know, I guess the speculation is that perhaps in this other dimension, this realm, because, you know, in the case of Sean's story, he wasn't in hell yet, right? He was kind of on the way. And in the story you're about to hear, same thing, um, the experiencer was not in the final destination. They were kind of on the way. Right. Well, that sort of gives another little clue to the physicality because, you know, if it's a spiritual type of thing, you know, you'd think you'd just open your eyes and, you know, you've just been sort of transported to this other place. But, you know, there is transit that happens. There's physical transit. Yeah. So, I guess the speculation is perhaps these realms are kind of a a virtual reality, you know, just, just so that these sort of spiritual entities can interact in some way. It's an interesting speculation, right? Because, you know, in Luke 16, you know, the, the story with Lazarus and the rich man, you know, they, they're talking about physicality here. This is post-mortem, you know, and uh, there's a, a great chasm and the rich man experiences physical pain, you know, but he, it's not so unbearable that he can't speak, you know, so there's this weird stuff going on. And so the question is, what exactly is that dimension or realm? Right. Well, I don't have the answer for you right now, Gons. Well, Basil, that's too bad. I was hoping you would come <laughs> through with a little bit more. I know I have compelling. most of life's answers. <laughs> that is one that I do not currently hold. But you had a chance to speak with somebody about their near-death experience. Yeah, that's right. Let's check that out now. My name is Yvonne Noctigal, and um, I am a survivor of a brain tumor. And during the process of the surgery to remove a four and a half centimeter tumor from my brain, I was transported into, well, through the dark veil, I guess what you might say, to another dimension where I woke up. She said that she grew up a Christian. Regular churchgoer. But she didn't really know about all of the... Conspiracy theories. I call it just the occult. And what they're tangibly doing and how it all pulls together with prophecy and the end times and whatnot. I wasn't aware of any of that. And it should be noted here that Yvonne was the person that got us in contact with Dane Wigington Back in episode 60, when we talked about geoengineering, she was one of the webmasters at geoengineeringwatch.org until recently. But she said until her NDE experience, she considered herself a kumbaya Christian. (laughs) Since then, I've I've become, my friends call me intense. (laughs) The doctors told her that she had had the tumor for over um, seven years. And it got to the point where she was so sick that she was just completely bedridden. Left side of my body became paralyzed. Now, this was December 2010. Christmas, I was, you know, pretty much 
out of commission. I mean, I couldn't, I could barely get up to do anything at all anymore and was finally ended up at the doctor's, put me immediately in the hospital. Now, she mentioned this was a four and a half centimeter mass and she needed to get into surgery right away. The strange thing was when they came in to the room for the first time to tell me what they'd found on the CT scan when the doctor came in the room, he looked so nervous and he was so pale. And my impression was, oh, he's trying to tell me I'm dying. And I, I mean, I just read that from him and I felt this peace. That right then and there, that this peace was with me that I can't I can't even put it into words. But I felt this love for that doctor and I felt so bad for him. And uh, that moment, it was just the beginning of something powerful. They carried me through this enti- entire thing. And so with this peace that was over her, that can only be described as God's peace. Yvonne helped the doctor tell her that she was going to die. <laughs> it was really sort of, um, yeah, it was, it was all very supernatural. Well, they moved Yvonne over to a special neurology hospital where they set her up with a neurosurgeon. One of the best surgeons in the United States, actually. And when she went into surgery, she tried to stay positive and encourage everybody around her because, again, she felt... This peace. Everyone around me was so upset and crying. My children flew in. Everybody was so upset because it really didn't look good. But um, I just had this comfort. I knew God was holding me. And it sounds... I don't know, Christianese or something, but it was real, it was tangible. And I had no fear. I had a brief moment of fear before the surgery, the morning of the surgery, where literally I believe the enemy came in and just tried to make me afraid. And and I just recited scripture and sang praise songs and it quieted down and he was holding me again. And I knew whether I died or whether I lived, I was... He had me, and it was fine, it was good, it was all good. Once the surgery began, they made an incision. From my crown of my head to the bottom of my neck. Then they drilled a hole at the base of her spine. A little bit larger than a silver dollar. And they penetrated the membrane that sits between the two hemispheres of the brain. And approached the tumor that way because it was deep inside my brain. It wasn't right near the skull. And they had to pull the tumor out piece by piece using this tiny little instrument. I mean, I can't even imagine how they did it. Just crazy. And I guess the hole is still there. I know, they, when I get my hair cut, the girls, you know, they like to massage your neck. I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> Keep your thumb out of my brain. <laughs> so getting back to what she experienced, she was under anesthesia and... Surgery started, I guess, and, and uh, next thing I knew, I was sitting there and I was wide awake.
and uh, you know it took me a second to sort of start getting my bearings and I looked around me and it was this was not a dream this was very much I was wide awake my thoughts were very clear more clear than they are here but that you know I'm sort of spacey anyway but um my thoughts were very clear and um nothing was uh you know how dreams little things fade in and out and you can't quite put it all together this was very realistic i i was in a place that wasn't the hospital room um and there was this first of all the beautiful colors of gold and auburn and these beautiful colors what is this this was a massive wing what i was looking at these beautiful colors were this massive wing i would guess what 50 feet long it was huge and it was holding me and i started to sort of realize that what i was seeing what i was experiencing oh and i realized i didn't make it okay and there was a there was love there was peace like um it's it's beyond the beyond description the love that you have when when you hold your baby for the first time it, that love was directed at me just this immense rest and peace and love and this unbelievable I was so fascinated with this wing that was holding me and I knew I was being held by an angel and I realized that all this time that I'd been having that peace from the very beginning when the doctor walked in he'd been holding me already then he was already there and now I was just you know through the veil seeing what was there but I was unable to see it before and I reached down to try to touch this because the wing was made of something that didn't exist in this world it was real it was solid it wasn't just spirit it was he had mass of some sort to him and the best way that I can describe it sounds very much like all of the biblical descriptions of visions that prophets have seen of, of angels but he was like gold if gold were liquid and semi-transparent or like a, a gemstone if it was perfectly pure you could it was the, it, it, there aren't words really to describe how beautiful what this being was made out of was I guess it brings tears to my eyes to even try to describe him he was glorious I guess that's the best word I reached my hand out to try to touch him to like almost like a baby to try to feel what he was it didn't occur to me that I didn't see my hand a lot of things occurred to me afterward but there was even there were even um, like uh, veins that I don't know I could see the the tiniest structure of how he was made I was able to see in 
in a perfect way somehow. It was different than my eyes here were able to see. I was, that was all very fascinating to me because uh, I'm, I'm extremely visual anyway. And, and so that was really a focus was what I could, how I could see so intently and I was just in love with where I was <laughs> so this was good I he was carrying me somewhere we were going somewhere and I knew you know, I was going to meet the Lord I knew that I was going to see Jesus I was I was so happy I was so at peace thinking for a moment about my family just they're going to be sad. They're going to be heartbroken. But the instant that I even thought about them, I knew, you know, he had them. God had them. They were fine. He was going to take care of them. And so it was instantly no fear, no sorrow there. And um, and then it hit me. And this was this was a powerful, extremely powerful thing that I thought. I mean, I thought back on my family. I thought back in this world. And um, everything, everything that I'd ever done wrong had never happened. And that's real hard to describe because there was some, there, there was some sense of an awareness of that I had done things wrong, of sin, but it had never happened. It wasn't just forgotten. It wasn't just under the blood. It, had literally in this realm wherever I was it wasn't there you know it was it wasn't allowed to go there that was um it was pretty mind-boggling but you know I wasn't mind-boggled at that point it was just I, I it, it's more mind-boggling when I come back here and I try to you know think it through again there it simply was the way things were it was just separated that wow it never happened and I turned my attention back to where I'd come from the world and this also stays with me a lot this comes to me a lot that the world was I, I thought back on it and it I was like that's all it was it was just this brief little blink in time it was this tiny little moment. It was not at all this, oh my goodness, you know how we are so concerned about all the things in this world and our worries and our, the things we strive for, the things we are we think are so important and struggle for and travail over there. I just thought, oh my gosh, I had it all wrong. It, most of everything there was complete vanity. It didn't matter. It was just this live in time. None of that even mattered. And the only thing that mattered, the only thing that mattered was that I knew Jesus Christ was all that mattered. And I didn't even think about it in those words at that point. It was more of a, oh, wow, I understand. You know, I just, I saw that. And I saw, I look at Every thinking of everyone in the world and how they were running around just in this artificial reality that wasn't reality at all. And here I was outside of it and 
gosh, I would have loved to, to tell them, but, you know, here I was. Just that, you know, none of it was real. The only thing that was real is, is the Lord. The only thing that was real is, is Jesus. And um, all my sins being never, having never happened, you know, I think I really experienced my salvation like I'd never um, understood it before. Now, it was around this time when Yvonne looked down and she saw a large mass of people. A crowd, but they didn't look the same as they look here. I saw things differently somehow, which is, uh, I'm sorry, it, that's really hard. I can't put words on it really to describe how like, things look different. But it was as though they were made of something which was not in the realm I was in. And they were almost like silhouettes, but they were three-dimensional. She said she could see them, but they were really dark, and she could see a faint light emanating from them. And they also had a, almost a, an aura around them. And somehow I perceived that they were, they were the saints, they were the, they were the Christians, they, because they had the spirit, that same spirit, the same glow to them that this angel had and understood that they were talking to one another I didn't hear them I only saw them and one or two of them had their hands up in the air and I was just looking at them and, and that's when the angel spoke to me and he had a beautiful voice I can still hear it but I can't describe it it's just powerful and beautiful and gentle and he said to me the multitude is petitioning for you yeah that <laughs> still makes me cry and uh, it, it touched me just you know really And about that time, I felt a sensation in my leg, like an electric shock. And I thought, what? You know, I'm, how can I feel anything in my leg, right? And I realized, I'm, oh, they're, they're working on me. They're still working on me. And I, I was aware they're trying to bring me back. And so I, I was a little bit in both dimensions at that point. It's so hard to explain some of this stuff. It sounds so... Sure, you're doing great. <laughs> it's an amazing story. Yeah, it is. I know, it's amazing. So, so I felt that, and... At the same time, still just, I mean, my mind, everything about what I was doing, it was just, I couldn't wait for the next thing.
if I shared this story with people before, the, the things that a lot of times with people who've lost loved ones is to comfort them that, you know, these children or those people that are in Christ, they are, they're not sad. They know you're okay. And they, they're, they're so excited about where they are. It's just like, this is the reward. This is the, after, you know, you're done with your work and you rest now. And it's, it's, it's joy, it's fulfillment, it's, and, and you're just excited. You're happy. It's like, oh, you know, what, what comes next? Because the beauty is just, you want to see more and more of it. And the love is like nothing you've ever felt in this world in that presence. I believe it was just the angel's presence. Of course, he was, I don't know, that gets off into theology in your mind. I'm not sure I understand all of it, but the point being that it, I had no thought of going back. I didn't, I didn't desire to go back, and yet the multitude was petitioning for me. So, And then the angel spoke again, but this time he was a little different. He was more formal, like he was making a declaration. It was very proper. And, and he said, the, the petition, petition is granted. granted. That was it. And the very next instant, I mean, bam. I heard hospital sounds. Wow. And, and at that point, were you back on the operating table, or, or were you waking up from No, the- I was in recovery. I was back there, and I heard the hospital sounds, and I was, I remember I was squeezing my eyes shut, and I kept saying no. I kept saying, you know, no, no, I was in heaven. I was in heaven. No, no. I, I didn't want to come back. <laughs> was, let me go, let me go. <laughs> I wanted to see what was next. I wanted to see the Lord. I wanted to see, you know, I was ready. I was just ready to go. <laughs> and, um, no, nope. it was kind of cute because as I'm struggling, I heard the nurses whispering to each other. She keeps talking about being an average. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, you know, I'm in Nashville here and, um, and the one nurse, she took my hand. And I don't remember her face, but I remember, I'll never forget her words. She took my hand, and, and she came down close to my face, and she says, Sweetie, you're, in, you're, you're at Skyline Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're not letting you go to heaven today. <laughs> <laughs> it was just cute. Just sweet, you know. She's just, nope, sorry, you're not going. Well, how how long of a period had passed from the beginning of the operation until that moment you woke up? And then how how long did the actual experience feel like it was? I would say time-wise, it's impossible to say because there isn't time there. Mm. In that place, it it doesn't make any sense, but it feels like the right thing to say that even though everything you know, I just recounted it in an order and it seemed like there was an order there still wasn't time it was all at once it felt to me the feeling wise experience wise it, it felt like it could have been 
estimate a half hour, an hour, and it, it, it could have been a couple minutes. I'm not sure. I don't know. I've been asked that question a lot. It's very difficult to answer that. Hmm. And then and back here on Earth, what, how long? And as far as uh, here, you know, I, I spoke with a surgeon. Oh, this is important. Right. It turned out that when they were removing the tumor, there was part of it which was wrapped around a main artery in my brain. That's where the problem was. And as they tried to get the pieces that were tangled up in the artery there, that's when they started to have problems with my vital signs. And then they had to um, back out and try and get me back at that point. So that was where it happened. And the the surgeon, when I, when I asked him if they ever really lost me, he said, you know, they had... The, the, as far as he went was that um, they had some problems with my vital signs. That's as far as he went. Now, she said that her husband and family who were in the waiting room, they were in there for about five and a half hours, and they can watch her through a video monitor. But she said that at one point... The nurse sitting there turned the video so that they wouldn't see it. And she was real quiet. And it was strange because up until that point, the nurse was giving her husband a blow-by-blow blow of what was going on in the operating room. But all of a sudden, she just stopped. My husband finally asked, you know, is, is everything all right? And she just, oh, it's, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. Yeah, so there was something there that, I don't know. She asked a couple more times what exactly happened, but they wouldn't tell her. And she said unless she demanded that they tell her, they weren't going to let her know anyway. But, you know, Yvonne said that it doesn't matter, because I know where I went. I know where I was. So what's the takeaway here? What's your message to the people? I think there are three things that are the most important. First of all, the salvation message. There is nothing in the world that matters besides knowing Jesus Christ. That is all that matters. I mean, all absolutely all that matters. When it all comes down, looking back on this world, that's the only thing you'll regret, is, not, is missing Him. For those who have lost loved ones, if they know Jesus, know that where they are is wonderful, that they're well taken care of, they have joy and love, and they're wonderful. Um, the things of this world, and that's really what my life's become about, and I've talked with you a little bit about that on email, and that is, when I came back, everything was different, and I knew it. I'd had the experience of realizing the vanity of things, and, and when I came to, of course, I was in a hospital bed for days, and then I was in, in bed at home for days. It was a, roughly a year of recovery, and as I looked outside, I was different. I knew I was different. I was keenly aware of the creation was corrupted and it was different and i kept saying to my husband mike i'm different i'm different uh, the angel that was holding me i was still aware of him for weeks i would talk to him i could come in the room i'd be talking to him he didn't answer me but i knew he was there and i'd just you know share my feelings with him sometimes i was just so acutely aware of this parallel universe that was there and but the corruption of the world has never left me the awareness of this fallen creation the awareness of what the fall of mankind has done to this world has never left me 
And it is absolutely, this, it consumes me. I can't shake that. A few weeks later, when she was able to walk again, she walked outside for the first time. And I looked up and I, I asked my husband, I said, what are they spraying in the skies? What are they spraying? What are they doing? And he says, oh, we have condensation trails. And of course, I started to investigate that. And that was only the beginning, obviously, of digging into what's really taking place in the world right now on all these multiple levels and really being about, you know, Satan and those that follow him and bringing about their grand scheme and the horrible things they're doing to everyone. All of that. And I see it now, Lance. I see it like I can't. I see people, they're, they're slaves. And I, I mean, I understand uh, Romans chapter six through eight, like never before, that when a man is dead, he's free from sin. And, and until until then, where these bodies are, I don't know, this, this world is enslaved. And we're all too aware of that on this show, but uh, Yvonne also told us that when she first tried to relay this experience to people. There was my spirit knowing what I had seen, knowing what I'd experienced, and I would try to say it. And there was this acute awareness of this body that I was now in and how the words when I spoke them uh, were corrupted. That I was now back in this corrupted body and that glory was very hindered by it, you know, from being translated into this world. Thank you, Yvonne, for letting us share your story. And thanks for listening to Canary Cry Radio. Make sure to tune in next time. But until then, think outside the cage. <laughs>